Welcome to the International Trade Minute, quickfire trade news, where time is trade. We are your go-to podcast for rapid and concise updates on trade and law, designed specifically for busy trade professionals. Sponsored by Rydell Law Firm and prepared by seasoned trade attorneys, our twice-weekly podcast packages, your essential trade updates, all in the time it takes to enjoy your coffee break. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and join the conversation with a network of like-minded professionals on LinkedIn. Where time is trade, make every minute count. In today's episode, we're exploring a range of developments that are reshaping the landscape of international trade. Let's get it started. First, we delve into a recent ruling by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, that underscores the strict regulations governing customs brokers. It's a story of compliance, regulation, and the intricate dance of international trade. At the heart of this case is Heisworthy Customs and Freight Solutions, a customs broker that found itself in murky regulatory waters. Heisworthy posed a question to CBP. Could they hire a foreign offshore unlicensed company to assist with data entry for import filings? The task seemed simple enough. Review shipment documents and key and data into the automated broker interface, or ABI. Heisworthy would then audit and transmit the data themselves. But here's the twist. Customs law is clear. Only entities with a customs broker license may conduct customs business. And this includes the preparation and electronic transmission of documents intended for CBP. CBP's ruling, dated December 19th, was a resounding no. They stated that identifying and keying entry-related data falls squarely within the scope of customs business. In other words, the unlicensed company's involvement, however indirect, constituted an impermissible act. This isn't the first time CBP has had to clarify this stance. A 2009 ruling found that even using technology like optical character recognition to generate entry documents without transmitting the entry was off-limits for unlicensed contractors. Heisworthy argued that the unlicensed company would sign a confidentiality agreement and have limited ABI access, but CBP was unmoved. Access to ABI for entry purposes is strictly limited to customs brokers, importers, and ABI service bureaus. The unlicensed company didn't fit any of these categories. Moreover, CBP highlighted privacy concerns. Allowing an unlicensed third party to use Heisworthy's account with its trove of client records would breach privacy obligations under CBP regulations. And the final nail in the coffin? Since December 19, 2022, all customs business must be conducted within the U. S. Customs Territory. The use of foreign employees by the unlicensed company thus presented another regulatory hurdle. This ruling serves as a cautionary tale. In the intricate web of international trade, compliance with regulations is not just a best practice, it's the law. Next, we're diving into a significant CBP ruling that clarifies a modern approach to commercial invoicing. It's a decision that embraces technology and impacts how customs brokers operate. Our story begins with Mohawk Global Logistics, a customs broker navigating the digital landscape of trade documentation. They approach CBP with a plan to generate commercial invoices from data received through Electronic Data Interchange, or EDI, transmissions. This plan represented a shift from traditional methods. Instead of relying on physical or signed documents, Mohawk proposed using digital data elements provided by shippers or importers to create an invoice. The question was, would this method meet CBP's stringent regulations? CBP's response, dated December 14th, brought clarity. They confirmed that an invoice generated from EDI data, despite being computer-generated and unsigned, would be considered an original under CBP's regulations. 
This ruling signifies a step towards digitalization in trade documentation, recognizing the evolving nature of international commerce. According to 19 CFR 141.81, a commercial invoice is mandatory for each shipment at entry summary filing. CBP highlighted that as long as the invoice includes all necessary information, including the name of a knowledgeable exporter employee, it meets the requirements, even without a physical signature. Mohawk's approach also accounted for scenarios where additional declarations might be needed for certain commodities. CBP agreed that these could be included either directly on the EDI-generated form or provided separately by the importer or supplier. This ruling offers a glimpse into the future of trade documentation, a future where digital processes align with regulatory compliance. It's a win for efficiency, accuracy, and the environment, reducing the reliance on paper-based processes. For customs brokers and importers, this means adapting to and embracing digital solutions. It's a clear message from CBP. Innovation in documentation methods is not just accepted, it's encouraged, provided it meets the regulatory framework. In this next story, we focus on a significant development in the seafood import sector. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, has implemented new self-certification requirements for certain seafood imports, a move directly linked to an executive order aimed at enforcing a ban on Russian seafood. Let's dive deeper. As of December 22nd, importers of salmon, cod, pollock, and crab are required to submit a self-certification statement for each entry, entry summary, or foreign trade zone admission. This statement is a direct response to the executive order banning imports of these products from Russia. The certification, which must be on official company letterhead and uploaded in PDF format to the ACE document image system, is quite straightforward. It asserts that the products in the shipment were not harvested in Russian waters or by Russia-flagged vessels, regardless of any subsequent processing or transformation outside of Russia. What's crucial here is the detail in the submission process. CBP requires specific coding for the DIS submission, including listing other as the document type and CBP-03 as the doc code. It's a clear indicator of CBP's commitment to thorough and accurate documentation. Additionally, CBP plans to issue more filing requirements under the executive order once the necessary enhancements to the Automated Commercial Environment, or ACE, are deployed. These future updates will be communicated through subsequent CSMS messages. There's also an important note for those taking advantage of the Office of Foreign Assets Control General License 83. This license allows for certain Russian seafood imports until February 20th, provided there's a written contract in place. For these imports, additional documentation, such as purchase orders or executed contracts, must accompany the DIS submission. This executive order not only expands the existing ban on Russian seafood and diamonds, but also addresses goods of Russian origin processed in other countries. It's a significant step by the Biden administration to tighten the economic pressure on Russia. For importers, this means adapting to new compliance requirements and ensuring meticulous documentation. It's a shift that underscores the evolving nature of international trade in response to global political dynamics. Up next in a landmark ruling, Singapore's highest court recently made a decision that challenges the boundaries of financial compliance and international sanctions. This case involves J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and a dispute over letters of credit linked to a vessel allegedly subject to U.S. sanctions. The heart of the matter lies in a transaction facilitated by Cuvera Resources' PTE Lieutenant, which was to receive payment under two letters of credit confirmed by Chase. However, Chase denied this payment, citing a sanctions clause linked to U.S. laws. They argued that the underlying transaction involved a vessel, initially named Lady Mona, and later reflagged as Omnia, 
that was on their internal sanctions list due to suspected Syrian connections. A lower court supported Chase's stance, but the story took a turn at the Court of Appeal. The higher court had to untangle a complex web, a vessel with changed identity, unclear beneficial ownership, and the stringent nature of documentary credits in international trade. The court acknowledged the red flags raised by Chase, but highlighted a crucial need for concrete evidence linking the Omnia to Syrian ownership in 2019. The ruling pointed out the inherent challenges when dealing with vessels registered under flags of convenience, where beneficial ownership information is often opaque. The court's deliberation touched upon a fundamental aspect of international finance, the irrevocable nature of documentary credit transactions. They questioned the compatibility of broad sanctions clauses with the certainty and predictability that letters of credit are supposed to provide. In a nuanced verdict, the court emphasized the need for a balance between contract autonomy and the commercial viability of documentary credit transactions. The key takeaway? Sanctions clauses are permissible, but they must be explicit enough to provide clear guidance on the rights and obligations of all parties involved. Ultimately, the court ruled in favor of Kuvera, deciding that the Omnia's inclusion on Chase's internal sanctions list, without concrete evidence of sanctionable ownership, was insufficient grounds to deny payment. This ruling not only highlights the complexity of sanctions compliance, but also underscores the importance of clarity and specificity in international trade agreements. This case is a reminder of the delicate balance that financial institutions must maintain between adhering to international sanctions and upholding the principles of international trade finance. It raises critical questions about the nature of documentary credits and the extent to which banks can condition their obligations on internal compliance policies. In today's last story, we're discussing a pivotal development from the Bureau of Industry and Security, or BIS. A leaked draft document suggests that BIS may soon introduce stringent new export rules for firearms, gun parts, and ammunition. This move follows a surprising 90-day suspension of new export licenses for these items, reflecting a shift in the agency's approach to firearm export controls. The draft rule aims to align these controls more closely with U.S. national security and foreign policy interests. Let's unpack the key aspects of these proposed changes. Firstly, BIS is considering requiring certain end users to submit passports or national identity cards. This step is seen as a measure to address diversion issues and support enforcement efforts in case of violations. Another significant proposal is the shortening of the validity period for certain licenses. Currently set at four years, the new rules may reduce this to just one year. This change is intended to allow BIS to more frequently assess and mitigate risks, especially in countries or end users of concern. The document also highlights the creation of new export control classification numbers, or ECCNs, specifically for certain firearms and parts. This move could streamline the classification process and enhance regulatory oversight. Importantly, the draft rule also proposes that exporters first obtain an import certificate from the importing country. This requirement could play a crucial role in ensuring compliance with both U.S. and international regulations. The National Shooting Sports Foundation, representing major gun industry companies, expressed concern, noting that they've had no discussion with BIS about this document. However, the authenticity of the document remains unchallenged. The draft rule also suggests the formation of a firearms licensing working group. Chaired by the Commerce Department, this group would track data and review license applications involving firearms, parts, and ammunition. BIS's review was reportedly conducted with urgency, reflecting a growing concern about the diversion of firearms to activities that promote regional instability or violate human rights. According to the ATF, 
A significant percentage of international crime gun trace requests are linked to firearms lawfully exported from the U.S. What does this mean for the industry? If implemented, these rules would represent a significant tightening of U.S. export controls on firearms, demanding more rigorous compliance from exporters. It underscores the evolving landscape of international trade, where security concerns increasingly influence commercial practices. Thank you for joining us on International Trade Minute, your rapid source of trade updates for busy trade professionals. And we hope to have you back for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe.